Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Coal for Jersey Joe, Part 2 There had been, and would be, several noted marvels of footwork. Gentleman Jim Corbett had famously pioneered the style when he won the first gloved heavyweight championship of the world in 1892. Corbett established the outboxer, or pure boxer's style in the heavyweight division for a new era in the way he cleverly moved around his opponents and scored punches. 34 years later, Gene Tunney would derive inspiration from both Corbett and a contemporary world champion in the lightweight division, Benny Leonard, and successfully defeat Jack Dempsey twice. With Leonard Tunney and the light heavyweight Tommy Lothran, the 20s had seen rapid developments in footwork. Even swarmers like Dempsey and Jack Sharkey and sluggers like Max Baer had taken note. In the next decade, Joe Lewis and Ezard Charles would show precise minimalist footwork patterns, this would be the same era that Billy Conn would dazzle the light heavies and heavyweights alike with his vulture-like constant circling. Sugar Ray Robinson, a man never far from the top spot of anyone's best pound-for-pound fighter, would influence everyone from Muhammad Ali to Sugar Ray Leonard with his fleet-footedness. Then there was the great featherweight Willie Pep, who was often cited as having some of the most sophisticated footwork in the sport, proving his supreme defensive skills with two record runs of 60-plus straight victories. However, Jersey Joe Walcott was something quite different to all these fighters. He was a maverick with an almost eccentric quirkiness to how he rhythmically moved, whereas other fighters slid, hopped, skipped and ran with their footwork. Jersey Joe just seemed to stroll around the ring. His future opponent, the legendary Brockton blockbuster Rocky Marciano, said, quote, Walcott was difficult to fight because you could sit up all night trying to figure out his style, only to discover he had none. He would run, twist on a dime and then reverse himself in midstream. He would skip, then linger and throw a right when it looked like his reflexes told him to throw a left, end quote. He might have been inspired by the great stories his father and cousin told him of the original Joe Walcott's elusive movements, but it was Chappie who cultivated Jersey Joe's fighting style. Together, they developed a technique known as the Walcott Shuffle, where Jersey Joe would switch his feet to keep his opponent guessing which hand he was going to lead with, presenting tempting angles for opponents and then simultaneously unbalancing them. Perhaps Jersey Joe's most daring and most individualistic move was the way he could seemingly walk away from an opponent before ambushing them with a punishing right. Boxing historian Bill Ross wrote in his 19th of February 2006 article 
the style and substance of Jersey Joe Walcott, quote, His fighting style was described as cagey, tricky or cute. If he were around today, he would be thought of as a showboater or flashy. The Walcott style undoubtedly had an effect on later fighters who borrowed and utilised certain elements and aspects of his style. In Sugar Ray Leonard's middleweight title fight against Marvin Hagler, he clearly pays homage to Walcott by utilising the famous shuffle in the final 30 seconds of round 11. Leonard is seen shifting his stance and rolling his shoulders before throwing a right-lead-left hook combination. Whether Leonard was aware of where the move originated is unknown, but if Walcott saw it, I'm sure it brought a smile to his face. End quote. Beginning as a middleweight, Jersey Joe, like his contemporary and future great adversary Ezard Charles, as well as future heavyweight champions Jimmy Ellis and James Tony, would become more skilled than most of the heavyweight fighters he would eventually face. These types of fighters who mature through the light heavyweight ranks tend to bring with them faster hands and become successful counterpunchers. This counterpunching style was far from being just reactive. Holding his guard at chest level, Jersey Joe would feint not just with his hands but his shoulders, drawing an opponent's reaction and then counter. Likewise, his head movement was used to counter committed jabs, where he would spring up off a slip or dip with a punch to catch his opponent off guard. Like the great Gene Tunney, Lewis and Sugar Ray Robinson, Jersey Joe didn't neatly fit into the category of a strict outboxer. His clever feints and cagey defensive footwork were used to veil his famous knockout punches. This combination made Walcott, like only a very select number of great fighters, a master of the style most aspirant boxers covet, the Boxer Puncher, a sophisticated technician who has a punch from hell. In 1934, matters were looking up for both Jersey Joe and his trainer. Chappie's remarkable teaching abilities were noticed by Chicago businessman Julian Black. Black was working with Joe Roxburgh, who had an impressive amateur champion from his hometown of Detroit he believed could make it big on the professional scene, breaking down the colour bar once and for all. The boxer was Joe the Brown Bomber Lewis, fated to be the first black man to hold the heavyweight championship of the world in 22 years, and the second man only to do this. Under Chappie's guidance, he would also be the longest reigning champion in history with the most number of successful defences. Chappie agreed to coach this new prospect so long as Jersey Joe could join the training camp as Lewis's sparring partner. There was also the added incentive that should Lewis not pan out, Jersey Joe could be their man. According to Tom Myler's Close Encounters with the Gloves Off, Chappie told Jersey Joe, quote, We're going to take you on a trip down the alleyway of boxing and see what you got. If you show promise and we like you, we'll take you down the big, bright thoroughfares and you'll be a big name and you'll make a lot of money. The old colour bar is beginning to break down and more black boxers are getting chances now than ever before. In my day, it was different. Champions avoided black boxers. Me? I fought greats like Sam Langford and Joe Gans and Philadelphia Jack O'Brien and Harry Greb, but I never got a title shot. Things are changing now. It's not perfect, but blacks are getting there. You could be one of them. End quote. However, good fortune was not on Jersey Joe's side at that time. Within a day of being told of his possible golden future, he was rushed to hospital with typhoid. He missed his opportunity. Jersey Joe would later say of his misfortune, If I hadn't gotten sick and been able to meet that man in Chicago, who knows, I could have been the champion before Joe Lewis. It took a year for Jersey Joe to get back in the ring in 1935. This was the same year that saw the sudden demise of the original Barbados demon, Joe Walcott, when he was hit by a car. 
During Jersey Joe's time recovering, Chappie had taken Joe Lewis up the ladder of success as victory followed victory. Meanwhile, Roxburgh and Black ensured that Lewis was not seen as a threat to the white establishment. He was not to be pictured in the company of white women and to never smile when he defeated a white opponent, let alone jeer and gloat as Jack the Galveston giant Johnson had all those years ago. The personal bitterness Chappie Blackburn felt towards Johnson and the fallout of his reign at the top reinforced Roxburgh and Black's PR strategy. In Joe Lewis, My Life, Lewis relayed Chappie's words to him. Quote, You know, boy, the heavyweight division for a Negro is hardly likely. If you really ain't going to be another Jack Johnson, you got some hope. White man hasn't forgotten that fool with his white woman acting like he owned the world. End quote. Jersey Joe fought five times that year, winning each fight by a knockout. In five years, he'd won a total of 11 fights, all by stoppage, and only lost one on points. The last of these victories was the boxer who spotted him in the first place, Roxy Allen. He knocked Allen out in the final round of their eight-round contest. The following year, it appeared Jersey Joe would get his second chance at greatness. Chappie Blackburn hadn't forgotten him. Joe Lewis's training camp was in Lakewood on the New Jersey shore. His older trainer's new protégé was facing his latest and greatest challenge in the form of the German slugger Max Schmeling and he needed good sparring partners. Jersey Joe did not need to be asked twice. He arrived with hunger and vigour, further motivated by seeing how the other half lived. He is quoted in Myler's book, quote, Lakewood was a decidedly upscale locale and totally different to anything I'd been used to back in Camden. At the turn of the century, it was a very popular winter resort for wealthy New Jersey residents like John D. Rockefeller, and I believe Rudyard Kipling had gone there to recuperate from an illness. Lewis trained on the grounds of luxury Stanley Hotel and had his quarters close by in a mansion. I remember one New York writer, I can't remember who, describing it as setting fit for an uncrowned king of Fistiana. End quote. Unfortunately, Jersey Joe was perhaps a little too eager and ambitious. I was there for two days and both days I knocked him down with right hands, said Jersey Joe to the New York Times. Blackburn was laughing and clapping. He had been working with Joe to keep his left hand up, even tied bricks to his arm, and this was like proving his point. But after the second day, I was told my services were no longer needed. I just went home and I had five friends who told me, we knew you weren't going to stay there long because he's too much for you. I told them, I may not be able to beat nobody else but I can beat Joe Lewis. Regardless of this compensation, in the words of B.R. Bearden's Jersey Joe Walcott, The Long, Long Journey, quote, His stint as sparring partner began and ended in that round, and the disheartened young man returned home, end quote. As for Joe Lewis, the sparring matches were a foreshadowing of what was to come for the Brown Bomber. He suffered the first loss in his career to Schmeling. The canny ex-world champion had cryptically told reporters, curious at his confidence, that he saw something in the seemingly undefeatable rising star. He'd seen what Chappie Blackburn and Jersey Joe had noticed, a flaw in Lewis's guard whereby he did not fully retract his left hand after throwing one of his precision perfect jabs. This was paired with Lewis's habit of keeping his right hand back to throw a cross in a way he described as the same as a baseball player pitches a ball. Schmeling found this exposed gap to be the perfect fit for his famed straight right. Schmeling's style may have been that of a slugger, 
but it was supported by a high ring IQ. He baited and set a trap for Lewis early on in the fight, working his jab to encourage the pressure boxer-puncher to get comfortable throwing his own jab in its familiar style. All the while, he kept his right hand tightly cocked under his chin and ready to let loose at Lewis's opening. He didn't have to wait long. By round four, Lewis was down. He hung on confused. There hadn't been enough time to rectify this mistake in his training, and now, with a weakness laid bare, he could not adapt. Round 12 saw Lewis finally sent down for the count, ending his unbeaten fight record. This was a huge blow for the black community, who were pinning their hopes on Lewis's ascension to the heavyweight title, lifting the colour bar once and for all. Losing to Schmeling was even worse, despite being a philanthropist who Jewish immigrants in America would credit with saving their lives during the oppression by the Nazis in Germany, as well as being one of the main people responsible for helping Joe Lewis through severe financial difficulty in the late 1950s, Schmeling was Adolf Hitler's reluctant poster boy. His win was seen as a victory for white supremacy and the Nazi cause. However, as dismay reigned on the streets of Harlem, a grinning Jack Johnson flaunted the money he had won from betting against their hero. That night, Johnson had infuriated yet another mob, but this time it was his own black community, and not the white indignation that had responded to his victory over James J. Jeffries 26 years ago. The police intervened and rescued him. It was a sad scene in history. Before the rise of Joe Lewis, Jack Johnson was a living legend in the streets of Harlem. His iconography said everything about hope for oppressed races. However, his disdain for Lewis and his legendary coach had turned the crowds against Jack Johnson and police had to rescue the Galveston giant from their wrath. Johnson had been critical of Lewis since his professional debut in Chicago's Bacon Casino 1934. The promoters, not knowing Johnson's age-old beef with Chappie Blackburn, invited him to attend the event. Sitting in the front row with his trademark golden grin, Johnson was rich in image only. After losing the world title and eventually doing his time in prison, he had been refused a boxing licence whenever he had made a reasonable challenge. His ability to cash in on his fame had been severely limited, but still his appearance attracted interest in boxing circles. He stopped smiling when Joe Lewis entered the ring. He'd heard good things about the new prospect, but the sight of Chappie Blackburn accompanying the young fighter along the aisle filled him with loathing. The two men glared at one another. After Lewis had returned to his dressing room having made short work of his opponent, Johnson was invited up to give a celebrity interview. New York Amsterdam news columnist Dan Burley later wrote, quote, As we listened in amazement, we heard the former champion tell all present that Lewis might be OK someday, but that he was being trained wrong, etc., etc., he dissected the fledgling pro heavyweight from his feet to his head, all to show that Jack Blackburn, the skinny scar-faced trainer, was using the wrong methods in bringing out the best in his charge. Boos and catcalls greeted the outburst. End quote. Lewis was apparently in awe of Johnson, as so many upcoming fighters were, regardless of their race. He had certainly done enough to cultivate a striking image to go with his legend. Lewis recalled his blue beret, boar-skin gloves and silver-headed walking stick when he first met Johnson at his gym in Detroit. During his times touring Europe, both during and after his time as world champion, Johnson, forever the showman, had affected an English accent in place of his Texan drawl and also taken on European mannerisms. 
Lewis, in typical public politeness, had even defended Johnson, quote, every man has a right to his own mistakes, end quote. Understanding his position as a folk hero, Lewis's camp tolerated Johnson's occasional visits, despite his public criticism of Chappie. However, after Lewis's contender status became serious, with a signing to fight ex-champion Primo Carnera, Roxburgh and Black publicly listed the rules of conduct that Lewis would have to abide by, all of which could be seen as a direct criticism of Jack Johnson's behaviour. During this point, Johnson considered a different approach. In a change of tactic, he had predicted Lewis's victory over Carnera. After this had occurred, he had approached Roxburgh and Black to become Lewis's trainer. He was banned from the training camp on no uncertain terms. Roxburgh had been particularly vocal about how he believed Johnson's behaviour had damaged progress for black people. With little else to lose, Johnson now took every opportunity to attack Lewis in the press, usually focusing on Chappie's training of him. Lewis was shocked, and it was at that point Chappie told him about the sparring session in 1908 and the birth of their feud. Johnson would be yet another fighter calling out the great weakness that Chappie and Lewis hadn't been able to iron out prior to the match. Talking up the pervading image of Joe Lewis's clinical style of boxing, he called the Brown Bomber a mechanical fighter and said that he could not think in the ring. He added in more direct criticisms of what he called an off-balance stance in reference to the peculiar way Lewis carried his head to the right. It would seem that Schmeling's mysterious something was not such a big secret after all. In Robert Horn's 1990 retrospective article for Vault, Johnson was quoted with calling Lewis a clumsy greenhorn for continually holding his left too low. Given what we can see of Johnson's style of fighting, it seems a little hypocritical. Nevertheless, Johnson had predicted, quote, the first fellow who makes him step back and then throws a right at his chin will knock him out, end quote. After Lewis's setback, Chappie would immediately address the chink in his man's armour and correct this behaviour for good. Other fighters, such as the then reigning champion Jim Braddock, would be eager to capitalise on what Schmeling had discovered, but Chappie ensured that Lewis figuratively and literally closed the gap of opportunity. Two months later, he retired former heavyweight champion Jack Sharkey in the third round before sending Alator down for the count in round five before beating five more fighters on his path to the world heavyweight title. Lewis's management had to work hard with the Jim Braddock management to secure the controversial fight. With Schmeling campaigning for an attempt to retake the title, there was legitimate concern that if he was successful, Nazi Germany would never allow Lewis a shot. In the end, a hard deal was struck, with Lewis's management agreeing to pay Braddock's 10% of their future earnings for the next 10 years. Braddock, known as Cinderella Man, had a career comparable to Jersey Joe's with its ups and downs. His world championship victory against the impressive slugger Max Bear was an amazing upset from a fighter who looked like his best days had gone. In 1937, he lost the belt to Joe Lewis, effectively ending the colour bar and realising Chappie Blackburn's dreams. Such dreams did not seem close to reality for Jersey Joe, now under the mentorship of James J. Johnston. By his own admission, he was considered to be a journeyman heavyweight from 1936 to 1940. He was cannon fodder for rising fighters in this weight division. This lasted from 1936 until 1940. The shine of his first payment of $15 had long since dulled. 
He told the New York Times that purses did not increase much after this. Sometimes there were $18 and sometimes there would be $21. That was only if he got paid at all. After one of his fights, he was told that the promoter had run off taking the entire purse for himself. Outside of the problem with immediate payment, he would have the issue of managers being more interested in working for their better-known boxers and therefore not inspiring much confidence in his longer-term financial prospects. At the beginning of 1936, Jersey Joe was knocked out for the first time in his career by the aforementioned Alator in the eighth round of a ten-round bout. His next five bouts were all victories, but he drew twice against Billy Ketchell, who would round the year off, defeating him on points in their third encounter. He then followed this by being knocked out again at the beginning of 1937, this time by the hard-hitting and colourful slugger Tiger Jack Fox. Fox, the future Alaska State heavyweight champion, would end his career with 140 victories, 91 of which were by knockout, and many of these were in the first round. Jersey Joe's record began looking spotty. Not having an amateur career and being distracted by having to supplement poor takings from fights with regular work will do that to a fighter. He knocked out his next two opponents, but was outpointed by George Brothers in his last fight of 37. In Jersey Joe's own words to Myler, things were really looking bad. He kicked off 1938 with a string of four victories before a second meeting with Tiger Jack Fox in May saw him lose again, this time on points. In his next fight, Roy Laser, another fighter from New Jersey and a former Joe Lewis opponent, would win a close points decision over Jersey Joe. That year, his family was struggling financially. Jersey Joe's fights and work in general had been sporadic with little monetary return. They were broke and Christmas loomed with Jersey Joe's eldest son Buddy and daughter Elva joyfully anticipating Santa's delivery. Then at the last moment he was propositioned to fight Bob Toe on the 23rd of December in the Camden Armory's boxing and wrestling main event. He had little choice. He fought Bob Toe in front of 5,500 people and netted $75 to save Christmas in the Cream household. However, Jersey Joe's career remained uncertain. Despite this win, he was still a journeyman boxer, and his fight engagements were not forthcoming. Perhaps demonstrating his sense of local responsibility, he applied to work in the local police force. This job did not materialise. By June, his fourth child Ruth was born and the need to get regular work with decent earnings pressed ever harder. One of his fights against the slugger Al Boris earned him $90. Things were looking up. Then in November 1939, he outpointed another noted journeyman, Curtis the Hatchetman Shepherd. Shepherd, a former Intercity Golden Gloves champion during his amateur days, had the distinction of becoming known as the Gatekeeper. If you got past him, you were considered a potential contender for the world title. An excited Jersey Joe, having earned himself $100 for the first time in his career, put it to his then-manager that they might start their campaign for his shot at Joe Lewis's title. He said he received this response. Quote, Forget it. Promoters only want white heavyweights. They're all looking for the great white hope who can take the title from Joe Lewis. End quote. For many, the ghost of Jack Johnson's era from where the expression Great White Hope emerged, had still a long way to be exercised. 
Jersey Joe stopped another journeyman, Tiger Red Lewis, in round six before he took on another ranked fighter, Big Abe Skyscraper Simon. Standing at six foot five inches to Jersey Joe's six foot and weighing in at 256 pounds, he was ranked number four in the world. He apparently had the largest hands recorded for a heavyweight. He was also an intelligent fighter and would do well against some of the best in his sport. He would go on to challenge Joe Lewis for the world championship twice. Jersey Joe came into the fight in the worst condition he could recall. His last meal had been a few potatoes and some tea on the previous day. Nevertheless, he won the first five rounds by out-jabbing and out-manoeuvring the bigger man. His punches landed too. Years later, Abe Simon would recall that Jersey Joe's straight rights and punishing trademark left hooks had been the hardest punches he'd ever felt, even more than Joe Lewis's. However, the end would come in the sixth round. By now, Jersey Joe was physically exhausted. Simon had resorted to the typical big man strategy of wrestling and bullying his lighter opponents in the clinch. Eventually, the weary, hungry Jersey Joe stumbled into Simon's gigantic right hand and went down. Exhaustion rather than concussion kept the 26-year-old from getting to his feet. The same could be said about his career. This fight had highlighted the problems Jersey Joe faced. He could not afford to train or even eat reasonably in order to work in what was a dangerous profession he fell back on to support his family. Probably with the jaded words of his manager ringing in his ears, forget it. Promoters only want white heavyweights. They're all looking for the great white hope who can take the title from Joe Lewis. Jersey Joe decided the best thing for his family and mental health was to find some steady employment. It was time to stop chasing dreams. From shady managers to missed opportunities, his boxing career just seemed like a string of setbacks where the promise of a brighter future was hung in front of him momentarily before being cruelly pulled away. He had given up five times at this point, and now with a fifth child on the way, it was decided that this time he would hang up his gloves for good. He would let go of his childhood dream, his father's dream, and his mother's prediction. Son, you'll be the champion of the world if you get a chance. Meanwhile, over in Cincinnati... Ezard Charles made his professional debut. He was another middleweight fighter who rose to contend in the highest heavyweight ranks and defeat some of the best they had to offer. Little did either Charles or Jersey Joe realise they would share destinies at the top. Not long after Jersey Joe had made this decision to quit boxing, Jack Johnson would attempt to lure him out of retirement. The Galveston giant had fought his last fight in 1931 and since then have been failing to capitalise much on his fame. A new age was here, and interest in his achievement in becoming the first black man to win the World Heavyweight Championship had waned. A new black man had finally won the title. The animosity Johnson had with Lewis's trainer had ensured that Lewis's former awe of the boxing icon had turned into his own feud with the man. Banned from visiting his training camp after he'd attempted to wrest Lewis's training from Chappie, it had been reported that Johnson was working in Jim Braddock's camp when Lewis's management was still trying to negotiate a deal to challenge for the title. When he turned up at Pompton Lake's training camp, Lewis gave orders to, quote, Get that black cat out of here. I don't want him in my camp. End quote. 
Julian Black, like his promoter Roxburgh, made it unambiguously clear that he didn't want Johnson associating with his fighter. He loudly turned Life magazine away when they attempted a photo shoot with the two great black heavyweights. As we have seen, Johnson, familiar with playing the role of the heel, took every opportunity to publicly criticise and bait Lewis. Now Lewis had become world champion and publicly defended the title against another black man, world light heavyweight champion John Henry Lewis, in a fight sanctioned by all the major governing bodies. As the black community had turned against Johnson, Joe Lewis would easily ignore Johnson's barbs and insults, even his backhanded compliments to Nat Flasher, editor of Ring magazine. Quote, Everybody thinks I'm jealous of Joe Lewis, but it ain't so. Lewis, to me, is the hardest hitter that ever fought, but I still think his stance is all wrong. End quote. Now, 17 years after he visited the little elementary school in Merchantville, and according to Jersey Joe, ignored all the children who had patiently waited for him in the rain, Johnson had returned. This time, he wanted to speak to one of those children. He wanted to manage and train Jersey Joe Walcott. Perhaps, he thought, he could put a former pupil of Chappie's right. Jersey Joe wasn't impressed. He was sick of the promises in boxing, sick of the skullduggery, sick of the lack of money, and probably very sick of the legacy of Johnson's reign. Cole would feature in Jersey Joe's life. His first steady job after boxing was working on a coal truck during the winter months, but such seasonal work did not last. Nevertheless, he could find more work hauling rubbish, cleaning septic tanks and doing anything in a vain attempt to pay off the credit his family lived in in their dilapidated house on Magnolia Street. He wouldn't box. Not for Jack Johnson or anyone. He had made his decision. Such a decision Jersey Joe Walcott had understandably kept to since 1940. Now, in 1944, another man had to convince him otherwise. And he was going to do it with a tonne of coal at Christmas. End of part two. Hello, this is Jamie Club. Before the end messages, I have a special extra message regarding training over the festive holiday season. On the day after Boxing Day, Peter Jones of Cajun Roo has kindly booked me to teach his excellent club for two hours. The subject will be stand-up guards, their strengths and weaknesses. I'm particularly looking forward to teaching this ever-evolving topic and hoping to put to bed a few myths that can circulate in martial arts circles. Now, Peter has very kindly offered to open what was a workshop specifically for his club to the greater community. He's going to stream us via the magic of Zoom across the world. So for the paltry sum of £10 and two hours out of your holiday time, you can join in with us in the comfort of your own home. You can pay Peter directly via PayPal to C-A-P-T-A-I-N-T-A-U at hotmail.com or email him to ask for bank details. Cajun Room members, see your instructor for a special price. The Zoom link will be provided to those booking and paying. So, if you would like to break up the post-Christmas anti-climax or after Boxing Day fit in some actual boxing, not to mention kickboxing, Muay Thai and stand-up MMA, we'd love to see you there. Check out this episode and my future page for more details of the event. In the meantime, this is Jamie Club wishing you all a very Merry Christmas.
My other books, Wrong Foo and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Foo is a prequel to my Bullshit Sue and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com for details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltail or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there, as well as filming of my various lessons, so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel, to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.